0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to look at the whole chapter today. And just so while you're doing that, I've uh, just got a scratch off last, last night, so I'm going to see if I win, okay? You guys go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I uh, just picked this up at the store and... Let's see 250 grand is what we're going for. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a winner. imagine that. Now, why, well why would why in the world would I place a scratch off in, in church? You shouldn't do that on Sunday, right? But isn't, isn't there kind of this idea that all of us in a way, are really driving down the highway of life? hoping we stop at the right convenience store and either figuratively or literally get that winning ticket that will give us lasting joy and satisfaction. I mean, that, that's what Solomon is looking for in chapter 2, and he, he does a few tests to see if that will come about. So there is this arc in Scripture of creation and fall and redemption and restoration, and it plays out throughout the Scripture. Humanity is consistently seeking to move from fall, which is where we find ourselves, to lasting and uninterrupted joy. But we seek to do that without really wading through the brokenness and the redemption that will be part of life until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. Maybe maybe it's no more clearly seen as it is here in Ecclesiastes 2, this longing for joy and for restoration. And Solomon's not alone. You know, in Genesis 11, when the people got together and said, let's make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower to the heavens. No doubt they were doing that because they thought maybe... That would provide them a name for themselves. And of course, that would give lasting joy. Or in the book of Judges, when each man was doing what was right in his own eyes, weren't they all, though many, very sinfully just seeking lasting joy? Or when the Israelites went to the prophet and said, we want a king just like all the other nations have. Didn't they think that would make them happy? And Solomon says here, he is going to test his heart. He's going to test his heart and he's going to see if he can find lasting joy. So let's look, let's look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and let's read about the first 11 verses to start. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity, kind of a. Summary of these next several verses. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during their few days of life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, 700 to be exact, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, Father, those are kind of words that sing the blues. As Solomon had really everything that this life could offer. And he called it vanity. Vanity. And You put those words there for us on purpose. God, help us not to be people who are striving after the wind. Father, as we look at these tests that He took, and as we see in them kind of a reflection of the tests that we put before ourselves so often, God, help us to be people who ultimately are pursuing You And longing for Your coming when indeed our lasting joy will be found. Teach us from Your Word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So Solomon is going to test his heart and find out what will give him pleasure. And the good news for Solomon is he's got all the money in the world to do it with. It's not going to be a problem. So he starts with the tests of the world. He starts with the tests of the world, and there are a lot of them that he goes through. And so we'll talk about these and how we do these things, and really ultimately how they don't satisfy. What's the first test that he comes to? In verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He starts by testing himself with laughter or amusement. Now, you would think that, that funny people, if this works out, would be the happiest people on earth. If laughter would give us lasting joy. And who doesn't enjoy a good laugh? We all do. We all do. But does it bring us lasting joy? When you look at these two guys who brought a lot of laughter to the last couple of generations, you think, man, John Belushi, Chris Farley. Fat guy in a little coat. You guys remember that. Who? I, I don't know how many times I've laughed at that. But John Belushi... When he was 33 years old, seeking to find happiness, overdosed on a speedball of cocaine and heroin, and was found dead in an awful state in a hotel room. And then Chris Farley, this guy who made my generation laugh over and over and over on Saturday Night Live and in movies, at 33 was found dead in an awful state overdosed on a speedball of cocaine and heroin, trying to find happiness. He had spent the last 36 hours in frustration, as what friends described it, though he was at a party that was full of drugs and full of laughter and full of ladies. His last stint in rehab, just months before he died, there was a Catholic priest running a faith-based organization, and he said the last day, he said I loved Chris Farley. He was such a pleasant young man. And the last day he was here, he just looked at me and said, I can't wait to get out of here so I can get high again and hope I'll find happiness. See, all that laughter, all that laughter couldn't satisfy him. And we understand that because when we laugh, the laughter always comes to an end. And the task of the day or the tragedies of life are still there facing us. Sometimes we try it with amusement. Sometimes we try it with alcohol. Now, it doesn't sound like Solomon was abusing it, like so many in our culture do. But he said, I search in my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly. It was a test. I'm going to see, can this satisfy me? Can this satisfy me? Now, again, most scholars don't believe Solomon was going to get bombed. But he was throwing some amazing parties. 1 Kings 4.22 tells about Solomon's daily provisions. It says Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, or 220 liters, of fine flour. And 60 cores of meal. Or that's... 440 liters, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Now, that word fattened fowl just sounds kind of gross, but I've got to tell you, all he means there is good chicken. There's a, there's a place that I go sometimes when we do missions, and all of their chicken is free range, but there's no fat not great sources of protein, and these chickens are running for their lives consistently. So you go to eat that chicken, and their legs are long and lean, and the meat is just as tough as trying to chew cardboard. So what Solomon's talking about is just good southern fried chicken. And he's got enough. When you do the math, his portions would feed 15 to 20 thousand people a day. So the little Oscar after parties really, really can't compare just to what Solomon's got going on every day. And he's going to say it's chasing after the wind. Then he tried art and he tried nature. He says, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. See, kings, This is. it sounds beautiful and I'm sure it was, but kings in the ancient Near East, when they would conquer land, part of being a king was being a conqueror, but evidently there was an affinity for horticulture and they would try to take plants from places that they ruled over and put them in their native land as a reminder to themselves, really, that they were trying to rule the world. And so Solomon's got all of his accomplishments in front of him. And he says in verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. You can go and still see those today. These are the pools of Solomon he developed some 3,000 years ago to water the forest that he grew for himself. I can't imagine what these gardens are like. A couple of years ago, Danny and I were in Rwanda with alarm for their All-Africa Staff Conference. And we were there just trying to encourage their staff from all over Central and East Africa. And there was a guy there I became friends with named Peter Ding, really, really tall guy from South Sudan. And we are just visiting about our families, and Peter said, do you have a garden? And so we have got this little square foot garden. I said, yeah, I've got a garden. And he said, what, what do you produce with it? And I said, you know, a few tomatoes, a few cucumbers. Do you have a garden? He said, yeah, I have a few banana trees. And I said, well, how, what's a few like? And he said, we usually produce about 250 kilograms of bananas every year. And I said, oh, your garden's a little bit bigger than mine. <laughs> See, Solomon has these massive gardens. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. And over and over and over, he says, I wanted to cheer my body. I made great works. I built houses for myself, made pools for myself. I had great possessions. See, he's trying to satisfy himself. And he's got everything that the world would tell you could satisfy you. But he just can't. And he tries music and he tries sex. He says in verse 8, I gathered myself silver and gold. The treasures of kings and provinces. i got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delight of the children of men. Solomon has 300 wives, 700 concubines, all the ladies he could want. Guys are in the background covering biggies. I love it when they call me Big Papa. It's a happy day, you would think. But Solomon says it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. And these might be the most pertinent words for us in this chapter because music moves the masses. We hear words sung and we think, man, wouldn't that be the life? And Solomon had it. And he said, no, it's just striving after the wind. Or some of you, you're not looking for a thousand other women. You're not looking for a thousand other men, but you're thinking, you know, there's this one. There's this one at the office that just treats me great. And you're just looking at grass that you think is greener. Let me warn you today, you need to run. Because you're going to end up 50, fat and unfulfilled, having chased after the wind and ruined relationships. Listen to Solomon's words. It's a chasing after the wind. He says in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was the reward for all my toil. Solomon really achieved success. He was at the top of the game, so to speak. No one in Jerusalem who was before me or came after me was greater. When I read that, I I thought of Tom Brady. Now I've got to tell you, I am not a fan of Tom Brady. Um, I, I just don't like the Patriots. I, I grew up in in Texas, and uh, just by nature, they're from the Northeast. Um, Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars is their coach. They're not just not a Brady fan. But Tom Brady has reached the top of his game. He he really has. He really has. Here's a a picture of a house Tom Brady just sold. This is his Brentwood estate. He bought that from Dr. Dre, a rap star, for $14 million. He just sold it for $40 million. Now, Tom Brady, after he had won his third Super Bowl, if you're doing the math, if you're a Cowboys fan like me, that's three more than Romo has, okay? He'd won his third Super Bowl. And he's being interviewed on 60 Minutes, and they say, you've really achieved success. You're at the top of your game. What does it make you feel like? And he said, I remember laying down the night after that third Super Bowl, and just a feeling of emptiness came over me. And I just, I just thought, man, there's just got to be more than this. Surely there's something more than this. His eyes are tearing up. There has to be something more than this. Now, Tom Brady just made $40 million on the sale of this house. He married the supermodel he dated for years. He speaks openly about the pornography he looks at. He's got all you could want in this world. And there's Tom saying, isn't there something more? That's kind of what Solomon says in verse 11. then I considered all that my hands had done. The gardens, the forests, the pools, the houses, the parties, the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now isn't that amazing? Though he tried everything, Nothing under the sun could give Solomon lasting joy. Let's read that verse again. I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He considered the works of his hands, and he said it was vanity. Now I want us to look at another verse and compare these two. God creates everything that we know. And he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I considered all my hands had done, all the toil I had expended in doing it, and it was all vanity. It was all vanity. Isn't there just an echo of the garden? Solomon had all he needed, but then he said, "I'll, I'll test this. I'll test this. Now, he wasn't just looking at one tree and one piece of fruit. But he said, let me see. And after all that testing, he said it was vanity. But there in the garden, God looked at what he had done and he said this was very good. This was very good. Really, all people would have needed Well, Solomon concludes that first test, the test of the world, and then he decides decides he'll test wisdom. He'll test wisdom. And it's an interesting thing because this wisdom that, God had given Solomon. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. He says, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And so Solomon says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? Could ask for gold, for silver, for honor, but he asked for wisdom and God says, because you didn't ask for gold or silver or honor, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you all these things. So He asks, not for a bad thing, for a good thing, but how does this test work out? So I turn to consider wisdom, verse 12 of chapter 2. Madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. There is nothing new under the sun, He's reminding us. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me for its vanity and its chasing after the wind. So Solomon does say that wisdom is better than folly. And you need to hear, you need to hear that there is a way to live It's wise. And it's better than living foolishly. It's wise to have a job. It's wise to take care of your family. Those are good things. But to the degree that we're seeking lasting joy and wisdom, we're not going to find it. See, the problem that Solomon mentions is really the problem that all of us have. We're going to die. We're going to die. He says the wise will die just like the fool. And again, maybe there's that Echo toward the garden. See, the, the tree and the fruit on it were beautiful. They were pleasing, delightful to the eyes. And it would make one wise. Having the knowledge of good and evil. And I've got to tell you, I don't think Solomon asked for a bad thing. I don't think Solomon asked for a bad thing. He just didn't ask for the best thing to the degree that he thought that wisdom would satisfy him or give him lasting joy. Because make no mistake about it, lasting joy isn't found in wisdom, not even in God-fearing wisdom, though wisdom can point you to where to find it. Lasting, uninterrupted joy is found in the presence of God. That's the only place. That's the only place. So it wasn't a bad thing, it was a good thing he asked for. It just wasn't the best thing. And Solomon found that out. Because you're going to die. You're going to die. People spend thousands upon thousands of dollars making sure that their stuff, when they die, goes to the right place. And you don't know what's going to happen to it when you die. See, Solomon, all his stuff went to his son Rehoboam that the Scripture says was just a fool. So he had amassed all this stuff. And then he went... To be put in the box. And it did not go with him. Not even his wisdom. But Solomon says, I'll test it out one more time. So he does the test of work. He does the test of work. See, wisdom is better than folly. But both the wise and the foolish will die. C.S. Lewis said this, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because... It's not there. There's no such thing. So he couldn't find it in the world. He couldn't find it in wisdom. And you can guess whether or not he will find it in his work. So we pick up in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He's got a party every day, all the women he wants. got great music, a beautiful house a great garden, and he's doesn't. he got servants, he doesn't have to touch that garden except when he wants to eat, and then somebody brings the food to him. All this toil I expended in doing this, I hated it. I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, but he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. It's a vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Isn't that the reality of life in a broken world? This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart, which he toils beneath the sun, for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation? Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Isn't that an interesting statement? Nothing better for you to do than eat and drink and find enjoyment in the work you have to do. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who, pleasing, who is pleasing to God. But this is also a vanity and a striving after win. So he says there's nothing better to do than for you to enjoy your work. But here is the problem. Here's the problem. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? If you and I could go to work this week, whether you work at a place or whether you're busy at home, whatever you do, if we could go to work this week and enjoy the whole week, uninterrupted, lasting joy. That would be wonderful. How many of you, that that happens to you every week? No interruptions, your joy works, never difficult. It's always running smooth. Listen, we'll talk about lying next week if anybody's raising their hand, okay? There's a problem There's nothing better for this. Nothing better. Nothing better. But then the problem is that the work that we do sits under a curse that our earliest ancestors brought about. God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, your toil is going to be difficult. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. for you are dust into dust you shall return. There's nothing better than a man can do than to eat and drink and enjoy his labor. And isn't that really isn't that what Adam and Eve had to do? Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth. Work in an unfallen state that's not painful. Sleep with one another and fill the earth. Nothing better to do than enjoy the labor that's before you. But just like Solomon, Adam and Eve said, we'll just test this out. We'll just we'll just see. I mean it's really it's nice looking at It'll make us wise. We'll be like God. And isn't that what Solomon's kind of trying to do? He's trying to make himself the master of his faith, the controller of his joy. Can you imagine what it must have been like when they're out of the garden, working hard, sweating, working in thorns and thistles, trying to get their bread, and somebody comes and says, hey, uh, Adam and Eve, I d- I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, your boys Cain and Cain and Abel they uh, they were in the field doing their work, and they both made sacrifices. And um, God was well; he was pleased with Abel's, but uh, he wasn't he wasn't with Cain's. And uh, and Cain he he just killed Abel, and he. St- He's gone and he's not coming back. Both your sons are gone. Can you imagine those cries of vanity? Oh, vanity. Oh, God, can't we just go back to the garden? Can't we just go back to the garden where we're living in joyful obedience? See, Stuart Briscoe, when he comes, he says wherever he goes, there's one thing everyone has in common. Things are not the way they ought to be. They're not the way they ought to be. And since the fall of man, for Solomon and for us, brokenness abounds. Brokenness abounds. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have moments of joy. There is joy in an accomplishment in doing something that you love. There is joy in wonderful times with Family, my son and I have been talking lately about the joy of spending a day on the water and catching a ton of fish together. Some of you know the joy of spending a day on the water and not catching anything at all. I don't know what that's like, but I hear it's good too. (laughs) See, yeah, there's joy, but there's not uninterrupted joy. There's pain, there's brokenness, there's death, there's disease, there's divorce, there's heartache. There's people at work that are hard to get along with. There are kids that disobey you. And kids that are parents that can be really frustrating. And some of you hear this and you just think, no, 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 no. You you know, if you if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't get sick. You'd enjoy your work all the time. You just don't have enough faith. And and by the way, you'd have all that stuff and you just enjoy it. Listen, Gary hit on the prosperity gospel a couple of weeks ago, and let me Hit it again. Those sorts of ideas make great fertilizer, but they make bad theology. You live long enough, you're going to know this world's broken. This world's broken. And the Redeemer has come, and He's taken away the sting of death. And one day, that final enemy, death will be defeated and we will be in His presence forever. But right now, if we want... Those signposts, those foretastes, those moments of joy. We're not going to find it in the world. We're not going to find it in wisdom. We won't ultimately find it in our work. But there's a place we can find it. And that's diving into the presence of God. Diving into the presence of God. See, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. See, we can taste that even in this brokenness, He's good. Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why did he say that? Because to die was to go and be with Christ forever. In Revelation 22, John gets this picture. Revelation 21, pardon me, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their guide. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, we can't go back to the garden. We can't go back to the garden. But for all those who are in Christ, one day, one day there's going to be a city called New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven where we will be with the Lord forever in uninterrupted joy. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day? You may be here today, and you're really not prepared to go to that city because you don't know the one who is preparing it. Jesus, before He died and rose again, told His disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Maybe as a believer, you're just overwhelmed by the despair that sometimes life can bring on you. You've not had time for the presence of God, or maybe you've pushed and searched for it, but it feels like you just can't find it. Our worship team's going to come. I'm going to be in the back. I'd love to pray with you. If you want to know Christ as your Savior and King, begin to trust Him and move toward that city we're all waiting for. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the brokenness of this life. I'll be there. Love to pray with you, love to encourage you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus, because this world cannot satisfy us. And God, we thank You for Jesus, because even if we make all of the right decisions we can, we're still going to die. And we need a sin-bearer, a curse-bearer. To make it through this broken place as we look toward that city whose architect and builder is God. So, Father, we long for the day. And, God, I pray for us that in your presence, not only would we find those signposts and those shafts of light that point us to that city, but in your presence, God, I pray that we would be those signposts for others. That we would be those shafts of light that reflect how good you are and the future we look forward to. And that we would pursue You throughout this life. That we might not be striving after the wind. But that we might taste and see that You're good. That we might know that in Your presence is fullness of joy. And at Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.